online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique, the world through the lens of wine and spirits. This week we celebrate the highlights of Series 9 of The Drinking Hour. The Queen of Scotch Whiskey, Master Blender, Dr. Rachel Barry, Mr. Bubbles, Peter Ferreira of Graham Beck Cap Classique. We have a brilliant duo of chief winemakers, Natalie Christensen, chief winemaker at Yeelands in Marlborough, and Trevor Derling, chief winemaker at Napa's Beaulieu Estate. There's Pierre Paolo Petrassi, MW, head of beer, wine and spirits at Waitrose, and Essie Avalan, MW, talking grower champagne. A scientist, Dr. Rachel Barry, is also a pioneer She has held the title Master Blender for two decades, tasting well over 150,000 casks of Scotch whisky during that time. And she now oversees the Glendronach, Benriach and Glenglasser distilleries owned by the US company Brown Foreman. I spoke to her for episode 100 of The Drinking Hour and I asked her how important the scientific background was to what she does as a master blender. I mean, the scientific background is really important to me. I would say most people who who are master blenders have some um, experience of the science before they, they, they get to that position. Um, it's really, really important to understand where the flavours come from, how you can influence the character of the whisky, and how you can fine-tune it and perfect it and make it the best it can be. So it's really um, the science is the theory, I suppose, like learning music, it's like learning the theory. And then when you become a master blender, you learn how to compose. It's a lovely analogy. Um, how did you go from the scientific side um, at the uh, Research Institute to actually being uh, let loose in the barrel room? Well, I was very lucky when I was at the Scotch Whiskey Research Institute. It was actually in a really old building. It was a bit like Hogwarts. And deep down in the dungeon, um, there was um, there was a woodwork room. So whilst I was scientifically um, learning about all the flavours, at the same time, I had a bandsaw and I was cutting up wood from all around the world, um, making up little mini casks and also in analysing the, the, the intricate composition of oak and, and its influence on flavour. So ten, an analysis of 10,000 um, maturing casks in the warehouse during a project led me then into production when I joined a, a whisky production company and then I, I could apply all that scientific knowledge. So it was a very, very easy transition. Ah, well, that's good to hear. Did you always kind of harbour this ambition uh, even while you were studying chemistry, to make whiskey? I really wasn't conscious of it at all. I, I, would, I, would, I would say I was completely unconscious of the, <laughs> of the path that one could take back at that time. I mean, this is like well over you know, 30 years ago. Um, and whilst I was studying, uh, you know, I was very curious about single malt, brought up in distilling country, and I used to buy myself a miniature of different distilleries every couple of weeks. And that was my, kind of my reward for studying hard, but also a way to discover more about distilleries. So it really was a hobby rather than a vacation at that point. 
And it was just complete serendipity that led me into Scotch, you know, a, a, just a chance cycling past the career service at university, popping in and seeing what they've got. And the last day it was advertised was the job at the Scotch Whiskey Research Institute. And I thought, ah, I didn't even know that existed. Um, that's the job for me. Well, you'd be amazed. Maybe you wouldn't. Um, how many people I talk to who are at the top of their game, who found their uh, career by uh, serendipity. So it does uh, certainly uh, ring true. Uh, for those who might love a tipple but don't really know much about how whiskey is created, um, can you just explain um, what a master blender actually does? Yeah, a master blender really touches every point of the process. Um, I, I'm a bit like it, the, being a spider at the centre of a web, right from the barley in the field, um, understanding the quality right through to the spirit of the still, you know, assess the quality of every single um, spirit run, as we call it. And then the vast, vast stocks that we have maturing in our warehouses from zero right off the still, filled into oak, right through to 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, even 60 years old. You know, this is really very, very rare and very um exceptional really to um to to here in britain because um it's you know our climate is perfect for long maturation so i of course have to i'm an arbiter of quality i a guardian of quality and looking after the the quality of the spirit knowing the flavors we want and really bringing the character to life through wood policy. So I have to travel the world um, or just source casks from um, must be made of oak to be called um, Scotch whiskey. So it must be the very best wood that we mature in. And then um, we can we can sample, you know, use from bourbon cask, ex-bourbon cask to ex-sherry cask from Spain, rum cask from Jamaica, um, marsala casks, you name it. You know, we can um, fill lots of different casks. Um, but I've got like 100,000 casks to look after at the moment. And I'm always checking in on them, um, just like all my, all my um, sleeping beauties, um, seeing how they get on and, um, and then deciding when the time is right to bottle them or to bring them together in a marriage um, that's that's going to be you know beautiful and um, and and, and um, capture the attention of of drinkers worldwide. A little bit of everything, and obviously I get to speak to consumers as well, to drinkers, to get their feedback, and really understand what it is people enjoy about whiskies too. So there's there's quite a lot of the psychology side of understanding human perception, and also a lot of the the more analytical side of understanding the whiskey itself. Yeah, that's interesting because um, doing my homework, the most eye-catching bit is is how you do this nosing, and we'll we'll come to that um, in a second because it's fascinating. But um, you really, I was struck by the extent to which you have to have a knowledge of the entire process from barley to bottle. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, especially with um, single malt Scotch whiskey, you know, understanding the sense of place, the provenance, the atmosphere, the conditions, as well as the process itself 
helps you to really, really understand. It's like getting to know a good friend, you know. It, you, there's always more layers. There's always more to discover. And you, you really um, get to know that friend really intimately through this, you know, constant deep diving into into every aspect of whiskey creation and how it comes to be and 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 the and the beauty of the sense of place as well which the three distilleries i work with are in, in quite different locations um by the coast in a valley in an open expansive you know fields and fields and uh, they're very very different um and very individual um so yeah it's 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 really important to get to know them really really well yeah that concept of terroir uh, I'm a wine man, and obviously we bang on about it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is really critical to, to Scotch whisky as well, is it? Well, if you think about it, you know, we've got an excess of 130 distilleries in Scotland, and every single one is different. So each distillery, in some ways, is is like a chateau wine. You could say there's even more diversity than there is in wine, because um, they are so, so different. Uh, I mean, Glendronach in Aberdeen charts, it's amazing how um, everything kind of synchronizes. You know, it's a very robust, it's almost stoic in its nature. It's solid, it's got substance and the spirit off the still and, and, and we marry it, you know, in the very finest, the pinnacle, the very most luxurious sherry casks. Um, and it has that really deep, richly rewarding taste, like being down in a valley, very, very deep. And then, you know, with Ben Reik and this open, expansive atmosphere, you can see from miles to the mountains and to the sea, it's midway. It is incredibly experimental. It's where I get to play and have fun and be creative and expressive because it's such a versatile spirit. It's a spirit that can go to the mountains or go to the sea. It can, it can, it can, um, mature in a marsala cask or a virgin oak cask or a bourbon cask. It, 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 it just is so, so versatile. And then you have Glenglassa on the coast, right on the beach. And it's um, like it sounds like Glenglassa. It sounds like the sea, doesn't it? Mm. Um, and it's amazing how, how terroir, terroir, maybe, the influence of the atmosphere, of the mineral-rich water that's gone through filtered through limestone, the the sea air, whatever. It is the most lush, tropical coastal malt. And, and it's got this incredible kind of sea salt kiss taste. And you, you think, gosh, you know, that's it, it is to do with the sense of place. It's to do with the place. It's had an influence on yes. the character. Well, the, the way you describe those uh, three different distilleries is um is is beautiful very evocative back to um nosing then how do you do that nosing well you know we're all human beings and um we've all got what's called an olfactory epithelium which is one centimeter squared at the top of our nose this does the job really of when you breathe in all the aromatics got your nose touch the sensor it does the chemical sensing work of of the aromatics and then it interweaves, obviously, with your limbic system and your brain, your memories, your feelings, your thoughts, your emotions. And and you that's how you smell. <laughs> that's your sense of smell. And it's really, really important. Obviously, extremely important in wine, but similarly important in single malt Scotch whiskey 
um, to pick up the hundreds, if not thousands, of aromatics that we can create from the spirit of the still, be it a, a fruit-forward spirit, like an orchard fruit, be it a dark fruit spirit, be be it a spirit with a smoky character um, from from the peated barley, um, right through to maturation that develops the most amazing, complex, rich flavors through through um, really complex maturation as well. So that's how we get hundreds and thousands of aromas. And they're all natural. You know, it's a natural process. Dr. Rachel Barry, the queen of Scotch whiskey. Well, from the queen to Mr. Bubbles, it's easy to see how Peter Ferreira has earned that moniker. The winemaker at Graham Beck has devoted his entire career to making sparkling wine in the traditional method. In South Africa, that is called Cap Classique. Graham Beck produces nothing other than sparklers. And he told me that sparkling wine ran through his veins. Inherently, Bubbles is in my blood. So, uh, yeah, mm, we, we've really is exciting, exciting stuff to talk about. Yeah, I mean, bubbles have consumed your life, basically. Uh, some winemakers make a, a mix of different styles across their career. Nothing wrong with that, of course. Um, but as you yeah. say, bubbles, absolutely in your blood, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I have been very fortunate. Um, you know, uh, my winemaking career started in the mid-80s, and uh, I happened to join the first specialist producer of Cup Classic in South Africa, a small little wine called Pierre Jordan in Franchuk, and uh, I had incredible, great uh, mentorship in my seven years I spent there. And then, obviously, I joined the Beck family in the 90s. And, uh, yeah, we have really, you know, looked after the original vision of a man called Graham Beck to be the best example of Cap Classique out of South Africa that we can take into the international market. So the journey still really continues for me. I don't know everything. Uh, I'm still in pursuit of that perfect bubble. And, uh, you know, long may we not find it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I read somewhere, I, I really hope it's true, um, that you almost became a dentist. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what what inkling I had there, you know. It's it's rather a, a story that uh, it's long long forgotten type of thing. And, uh, yeah, I was just very, very fortunate that the timing was absolutely on my side and I had some of the best mentors that we still, uh, you know, I, I still value exceptionally well. And uh, and it's not about uh, you're looking after a legacy. I think we, we keep redefining and, you know, likewise, uh, hopefully, you know, I, 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 my sort of enthusiasm and passion does, does filter through to the rest of the team at Graham Beck. And, uh, yeah, it's a brand that really has stood the test of times. You started out in South Africa with a scientific background, which um, so many winemakers um, seem to have. How important is that science uh, to what you do day to day? Very good question. I think uh, science science there too is just a reaffirmation. It's really just to make sure that you cross the T's and do the dots on the I's. Uh, but really, it, it's, it's about uh, understanding the product, understanding the grape, where they are coming from, and the real sort of terroir principle. So a, a lot of that is really about the gut feel. 
and with that comes instinct over time and uh, you really yeah so scientific I, I will never brush it away i think it's just a confirmation of what we know but uh, it just casts it in stone for us really yeah i always wonder this because i was terrible at science at school and everything uh, that i do in wine and i don't make wine i i just judge it and uh, critique it and write about it and enthuse about it but everything for me is about a kind of um a gut instinct um and i often think i know nothing about science i'm terrible at science i'd be terrible at making wine so there would be hope for someone like me would there just just based on kind of instinct completely david uh, really you know there's one thing that everybody who loves wine and loves to have a good glass of wine whether it's sparkling wine or white or stills your palate never lies to you so it it really just comes back to understanding trust your gut because your palate will never lie not every wine falls on the palate for the for the same reason for anybody so it's a completely individual experience and really to me it's uh, you know uh, your palate your palate will guide you and your palate's trainable you know if i think where i started really only understanding sweet wine because that's my, what my palate wanted and the sophistication over the years that you can build it's really your ally is 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 your palate so yeah gut instinct is n- invariably in wine never wrong you spent a bit of time in champagne as well didn't you 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 did some harvests there Yes, I've uh, I've been very fortunate that I did uh, five harvests in in Champagne. It's really, you know, it's it, I think it's it's your go-to if you remain aspirational. Uh, Champagne is the go-to. It is the benchmark that we have to understand. And sort of divine inspiration comes from visits out of Champagne. Um, I've been very fortunate over the years to be involved in a little program in uh, California. And currently, Grainbeck is involved in the, in Hampshire, producing some English fizz. So uh, we, we keep learning and it, it becomes even more and more exciting to, you know, be involved in sort of international projects as well. The great Peter Ferreira at Graham Beck. While sticking with bubbles... Master of Wine, Essie Avalan, is one of the world's most eminent experts on sparkling wine and most specifically, of course, champagne. And she's just completed an assessment of well over 300 grower champagnes for Club Onologique. I had the pleasure of talking to her about the current state of the grower champagne market. We have to remember that when we are talking about grower champagne, uh, we are mainly talking about this, uh, say, couple of hundred names maximum, more more like less than a hundred names uh, in the total pool, pool of over 2,000 producers of grower champagne. Uh, not all of their, their quality is great. Not all of them are sustainable at all. So we are really talking about this, this cutting edge new wave uh, producers of terroir champagnes. And there are those who caution that grower champagne is much more susceptible to the vagaries of vintage and vintage variation. Is that a fair criticism of grower champagne versus what we sometimes call the grand marks? 
uh, obviously the houses have uh, have bigger blending options when it comes to if a certain region in Champagne has a problem. If a grower is based on that region, of course, uh, there's a problem. Um, but uh, but I think it's more the size that uh, is is might be a a. Uh, hindrance to the grower because it's it's it is easier it's more rewarding to make champagne in larger volumes you know the you can blend them to perfection uh, polish them and the wines keep very fresh in large volumes so it's definitely tougher to make uh, make champagne in small volume and i see that quite a few of the top performers in your um, list in the report are making non-vintage. And, and I had always thought that grower champagne sort of tended to be vintage specific just because of the problems of, of, of having to have a huge library of, of reserve wines and that being difficult for a smaller producer. So does it tend to be more vintage specific or, or are you seeing more non-vintage examples? Well, I think it's uh, the same as for houses as well. It is the non-vintage that is the bread and butter of basically all producers. But there are some uh, who do release uh, even their vintage cuvées so early that they don't, um, they can't get that designation of vintage champagne. So 36 months on lease. And therefore, even if the wine is made 100% of a certain vintage, uh, the label might carry non-vintage on it. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, uh, tell us about the report then and how you went about assessing these grower champagnes. Yeah, it was a great, uh, actually, two-month project uh, when I was touring in Champagne, um, uh, visiting a lot of the the most interesting producers. But then we also contacted a quite broad uh, but well-selected list of growers who we knew that uh, might have a chance of doing very well in the report. So we put like the the sort of uh, 88-point limit uh, as the threshold of making it to the uh, report um, because that those that's the quality level where I think that wines are recommendable um, above eighty eight points. So basically, um, uh, we organized big three day tasting in centralized tasting in Reims where we collected all the all the the samples. So I tasted them openly this time, uh, each producer's range at one one go so that I could put them into perspective and uh, and look at the prices, the origins, the varieties and, and wine making and so forth. So I tried to put also in the in the, the tasting notes quite a lot of information about the grower and the making of the wine and the terroir especially. So you're not judging blind here as you would when you're leading the sparkling judging for the IWSC. You're looking at the labels. You know what you have in your hand here. Exactly, exactly. Yes. I, th- I find that it's beneficial to do both of these things. Uh, blind blind is blind and then it's only the wine uh, that talks. But obviously when, when you know much more about it, when you have information about especially, you know, the specific terroirs, um, it's, it gives useful information um, to the consumer. And I think that the tasting notes are much more relevant. And you're factoring price into your equation when you come to a score are you uh, not not that much not really no um it's later on one can look at the value for money but the assessment is is for the for the for the wine kind of in that respect it's like when you're doing it blind it's a qualitative assessment largely yes. disregarding yes. any thoughts about price yeah okay that makes a lot of sense and you presumably know uh, personally a lot of these growers 
Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, there were some that I didn't know, uh, but largely, yes, I've been following them for, for a number of years. And I'm quite happy, I must say, that uh, I'm, I'm liking at, at the moment grow, grower champagnes a lot. There's a lot of uh, new guys coming, new guys and girls coming all the time, every year, uh, numerous uh, new exciting um, ones. And, and I'm finding that the style is coming less uh, less oak dominant there's definitely lovely oak influence in many of them but not so dominant and also you know i'm not a big fan of oxidation in the wines and and definitely i think that the the newcomers are really really careful about oxidation so i'm i'm enjoying it at the moment a lot yeah i was curious about that and exploring it a, a little bit more that point on oxidation there just for those listening who love champagne but don't necessarily know how to make it what are you getting out there what what's the sort of the risk there with the oxidative process yeah, I mean, naturally, of course, the process of uh, making uh, champagne is reductive as we, we age the wine such a long time on the on the yeast list in the bottle. But the wine can be oxidized before it hits the bottle already. So um, uh, then we are getting this sort of, um, especially if you're working with barrel or small volume, you're not, not careful at every point in the making. Um, there can be a bit of uh, too much of oxidation, too much of an oxidative style, which which, which uh, many people consider a legitimate style, but but I think the aromatics very often get get very simple and aptly straightforward. There's like this this veil of oxidation that hides all the all the lovely nuances in the in the wine. So I don't really consider it welcome at all. There's of course the noble ex- oxidation, what comes you know over uh, over years in the bottle, uh, bringing those lovely complex aromas. But that's different from this sort of premature oxidation. That's the kind of deliberate part where the age is effectively naturally conveyed through the the presence of some slow, very gentle oxidation. That's right. Yes. Okay. Well, well, which is delicious, I I have to say. Um, You talk here, talking of delicious, increasingly you're seeing that many uh, growers seek transparency, purity and mineral tension. And a number of them achieve that even with uh, very low sulfites. That style there, that purity is something that you're seeing really emerging in grower champagne, is it? Yeah, I think it's something that, you know, people really want to make uh, the terroir speak, you know, uh, as transparently as possible with little masking as possible. And of course, in champagne, we have very exciting uh, terroirs, uh, say many of the chalky soils, uh, where you have this sort of um, naturally mineral imprint. And at the moment when the climate is getting uh, warmer also, there is this question of, you know, champagne's minerality, how, you know, minerality is hard to, to explain or interpret, but, you know, a lot of it also comes from acidity, but now it cannot only be acidity. You have to maintain that tension in the wines and you, you do get that tension from the soil. It's interesting you mentioned minerality there because um, when I uh, talk to uh, consumers of, of wine, you know, th- th- they're often very curious about exactly what minerality means. Now, I, I have my own definition, but um, frankly, yours is going to be a lot more interesting. So um, if someone tell, asks tell you... Me, tell me yours, David. I'll tell you. Okay, well, when I talk about minerality, I ask people to imagine that they have picked up 
from the, the purest uh, mountain stream with incredibly fresh water. Um, they've picked out a very, very smooth pebble from that mountain stream, and they've kind of licked that pebble, which sounds possibly slightly bizarre, but but it's incredibly pure and refreshing because you have that pure mountain water and you have that lovely, cool, smooth pebble uh, that's mine uh, i don't know what you think of that by the way as a definition you're yeah, well that's a very 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 eloquent uh, eloquent minerality there for you yeah no it's lovely because it's very much about that uh, that sort of texture that uh, that um, mouth feel that di- it's sort of dynamism it's tension it's that sort of um you know wines feeling very much alive even without out the bubbles it's um i really love minerality in wine yeah, absolutely. And, you know, beyond champagne, you know, a, a really good, fabulous Sancerre or something like that, you know, that you get that uh, that wonderful freshness. When you guide people towards the wines they love or the champagnes they love in this case, uh, they, they normally uh, start to sort of grasp that uh, mineral um, point. It is um, I- incredibly important. By the way, um, how do you go about um, really achieving that um, in your champagne, what's the best way of of showing minerality? Well, I think it really is. Uh, I mean, first of all, um, it um, it's about the age of the vines, uh, how how deep the roots go, wh- where the wi- vines are. I think you know this just example of of say uh, say crystal champagne, which comes from chalky mid slopes over 25 year old vines so and and then you try to make the the wine and as transparently as possible so really not masking it with too much oak or too much uh, batonnage or too much anything that's really when when you really want to maximize that uh, that uh, sensation of minerality in the wine the drinking hour with david kermode in partnership with club onologique the world through the lens of wine and spirits Well, champagne is the drink of celebration and there's been plenty to celebrate at Waitrose and Partners just lately. The team there having just landed the double of best supermarket for wine and also for spirits at the IWSC, the most uh, prestigious retail awards, and they won them both. Pier Paolo Petrassi, MW, has been in charge of beer, wine and spirits for about a decade. And he told me what the awards meant. We, we we set a lot of store with with doing the right thing first and foremost, and being recognised for that, I think is um is a fantastic accolade, and I can't overestimate the impact it has internally, both in terms of the you know the, the trading team that I look after, but also hundreds thousands of partners across the business who all play their part in um, in presenting what we show to customers day in day out as they walk through the door when it comes to wines and spirits. So, yeah, it means a huge amount. You know, we're incredibly proud of the of the awards we've won. And, and this is kind of the cherry on top, really. The IWSC is, is one that we are particularly proud of. Oh, it's great to hear and uh, richly deserved. And it's worth saying the retail environment is pretty tough at the moment, isn't it? It's an exciting place to be at all times. And I, I, w- I was thrilled to, to be given the opportunity to start working in retail many years ago. But it is incredibly exciting. Uh, and you have to take the rough with the smooth. You know, sometimes you have uh, a relatively easy ride. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit tougher and you need to be good at thinking on your feet and trying to balance that classic tandem of tactics and strategy. The former 
a little bit more flexible and fluid. The latter is really important to keep in mind during those um, tough times. But yeah, not easy at the moment. And uh, you must be feeling uh, the effects that producers are are feeling of uh, this kind of perfect storm of um, of, of, of the uh, the war in Ukraine, the energy crisis, uh, the spike in inflation, the dry goods shortage. When you talk to a, a wine producer, as I do frequently, you look at, say, the, the cost of a bottle alone trebling in some cases. It is, as I say, uh, tough out there at the moment, isn't it? It, it is incredibly tough. And I suppose the um, the last few years, including COVID, have taught us a lot more about the complexity of our supply chains, uh, which which is a good thing because I think it stands us in better stead going forward for understanding um, that complexity, how how we can sometimes render it simpler um, and have a greater level of transparency with those producers. But yes, of course, you know, from uh, from the perspective of cereal crops um, being much more expensive, that has a huge impact on on spirits pricing. With with glass, yes, absolutely right. You know, we, we've learned more about where glass comes from and where it's ordered by our various suppliers over the last um, couple of years than probably at any time in the past. And that's at a time when we're also trying to do our best to try and minimise our footprint. So perhaps the complexity of some of those supply chains and our ability going forward to simplify them is going to actually be a good thing, a good silver lining to the current cloud. Yeah, I think that's very true. And we're going to come to sustainability in a minute, uh, because it's really important to the awards that you've uh, just won. On prices, the people I know who are, you know, looking at all of their kind of costs rising, and uh, they go off to the supermarket, um, they kind of have a, a pretty fixed price, I think, in their head of what they're prepared to pay for a bottle of wine, for example. And I get the strong sense when I chat to them sometimes that they, they haven't really kind of factored in a, a 10% rise in the price of a bottle of wine. That must present you and your buying teams with um, really quite a, a challenge in, in kind of trying to keep a grip on on prices. And at the same time, obviously not sort of screwing suppliers as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's a very good point. And one mantra, which I repeat quite often to my team is that of all the things we sell, which sit under our trading department, the vast majority are things that the customer doesn't actually need. If it, if it came to it, they wouldn't actually need them. It's not like buying bread or flour or milk. They're not essentials. And therefore, we're often competing not just with other supermarkets, but potentially at a time of constricted spend for many customers um, with their Netflix subscription, their, the, the money they're putting in a piggy bank for a summer holiday, you know, all sorts of other things. So I think continuing to try and give value for money and explain as much as we can, why things might be changing, uh, as much as is possible to absorb those um, costs ourselves where possible as well, or work with suppliers to understand where money is being spent on the on the production of the product that perhaps isn't um, isn't creating any value. So extra packaging, uh, extra processes, uh, extra transport legs that we might be able to take away. So it's, it's a question of trying to hand in hand with the suppliers, also value engineer the, the cost of the product so that neither they uh, nor we lose and we hopefully give the benefit to um, to customers. But yeah, it's it's hugely complex and um, not, not an easy thing to go through for either they or us and clearly very difficult for customers at the moment too. Let's talk sustainability because, um, as you say, it was a, a major part of the uh, Waitrose offer. It was um, something that 
uh, you know, Waitrose and Partners was cited for its long term commitment on on sustainability. You know, these the judges who who look at the entries in this category, I know because I've done it, um, are very mindful of the likes of of greenwashing and the rest of it. Um, you know, you have to put your own experience of being in a store um, of of what you see being done uh, into the. Uh, into the equation as you judge these things. And, and Waitrose and Partners, uh, having scooped both of these awards, has, has done very well on that front. So tell us about some of the things that you have done that you're kind of most proud of on uh, sustainability. So I think when you approach the whole subject of sustainability, David, you've got to be mindful of of wanting to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, not of what any... Uh, potential impact might be on social media or with customers you've got to, you've got to unless you're in the mindset of doing the right thing because it's embedded in your dna which with the john lewis partnership and waitrose it definitely is it's part of our constitution treading lightly is a vitally important part of the impact we feel we have to have on society and the planet so i think if it comes from a good place then you can start to look at every aspect of your operation from an end to end perspective and that's where perhaps the the close relationship we have with a lot of suppliers allows us to just be um curious with them and ask them you know what's your how much water do you need to make a liter of wine how uh, how sustainable are are the um are the products you're using in the vineyard how heavy does a bottle need to be um how many samples do we need to pull in for one particular opportunity on shelf. You know, the more we pull in, the more we're asking suppliers to spend money, put, you know, products in packaging, send them over to us. You know, all of these are collateral impacts of decisions that we make every day. And therefore, nothing is out of scope. Nothing is out of scope. But more recently, the change to bring small bottles into um, cans in the UK has been uh, a really uh, important change for us, which we think will gather more and more momentum for wine going forward. I think what also helped us in that regard, rather than perhaps the perception of cans 20, 30 years ago when it was about cheap beer, the fact that the craft beer market has used them and used them to celebrate something premium as a good a good vessel to store something in has definitely helped change customer perception. So really proud of that. We don't lead the field in how much we bring into the UK in bulk to then package here. Uh, but we feel that there are opportunities for us to do a lot more. And I've got a, a great um, new colleague who joined us last year called Barry Dick, a fellow master of wine. Uh, and this is really his specialist area. So, uh, you know, we're putting our money where our mouth is in terms of doing things to hopefully tread much more lightly from that perspective. Weights of bottles is something that we often obsess about. Um, as we look at a whole array of wines on our tasting bench, uh, at Bracknell, we, we constantly think about the packaging that these wines are presented in and how appropriate it, it is. Now, wine is a really emotional thing to buy for many customers. And having something which you're proud to present, either on your own dinner table or to friends to give as a gift, is vitally important. And the look and feel of that bottle, that label is is, is important. And it's striking the right balance to make sure that we're not just accepting bottle weights, which are very heavy or too heavy, um, for the sake of it. So I think, you know, being much, much more mindful about a whole array of decisions from end to end of the of the supply chain is, um, is, is the way we like to run our business, irrespective of what the positive impact might be on customers. Pierre Paolo Petrassi, MW. Well, it's to California next, and uh, the first in a duo of uh, amazing winemakers, 
This one from a Napa Valley institution. Beaulieu Estate is celebrating 120 years in business, so it survived prohibition. Only the fifth chief winemaker in its history, Trevor Derling, is now in charge. His ambition was to be a fighter pilot, but he got the wine bug and now has one of the top jobs in Californian wine, making, amongst other things, Beaulieu's legendary Georges de la Tour private reserve Cabernet Sauvignon. So I took the opportunity to ask him why Cabernet was king in Napa. Well, it's, I think, a number of things. I mean, it's, it, you know, the, the microclimate and the terroir, right? We have, when you compare the Napa Valley, which, of course, even within itself has tremendous, you know, variation in microclimates and soil profile, et cetera, um, we have it, I have to admit, we have it pretty easy compared to a lot of other growing regions in terms of weather. Now, Recently, we have experienced, you know, droughts and wildfires and things like this, but it is very rare that we have, you know, major frost events or hail or, you know, cold weather to where we can't get the desired ripening. So we, we have the, we have a great climate, I would say, overall. But the other really unique thing about the Napa Valley is that there are over one half of the world's identified soil types that exist within this relatively small area. And, and just for those listeners who, <clears throat> who aren't exactly sure about this, um, you know, we're, we're about 30 miles north to south and about five miles wide. So the Napa Valley is a fraction of the size of Bordeaux, for example. And to have this incredible diversity in terroir is, is really a unique thing. Um, we're located in Rutherford, which is right in the middle of the valley. And this is Cabernet country, right? So a combination of, you know, having wonderful soils. Uh, we're, we're mostly planted <clears throat> on an alluvial fan, which is uh, washed down over the Mycomas range for millions of years. So really well draining, um, just enough nutrients in the soil to grow grapevines very in a, in a very healthy manner, but there's just enough stress on them to give us that concentration that we want. Uh, we're also a relatively warm part of the valley because we're far enough north to where we are away from the San Francisco Bay. So we're away from that maritime influence. Uh, and we, we do get the warmth that, you know, the, the high enough daytime temperatures to ripen uh, our Cabernet Sauvignon and get that phenolic ripeness that we're looking for. So um, it, it's really mother nature is what it comes down to. This is, this is why we're so fortunate. Yeah. And you are kind of blessed there with the exception of those terrible <laughs> fires that, that cause um, a sort of horrible mayhem from time to time but we won't dwell on that we'll we'll go to the the history uh because it's yeah. um you know we talk about new world uh in the context of california but this is uh, an illustrious history so Beaulieu, uh founded by uh, george de la tour tell us about him and and how uh, the winery was founded well, De La Tour was a, I mean, an absolute, the definition of an entrepreneur. So he was, he was born in Bordeaux and, you know, did come from a family of uh, grape growers. And so, you know, he, he grew up on a vineyard. Ironically, the, their vineyard was, was decimated early on by phylloxera, um, which of course was a devastating thing for him at the time. You know, ultimately they rebounded, of course, but uh, this would prove to be really incredible experience later on once, once he landed in California, which we'll get to in a moment. But he had a, a vision from an, a very early age of cr wanting, to, wanting to craft wines in the new world that would ultimately rival those of Europe. He, went into the, he had the travel bug, I think. He wanted to get out of there. He wanted to see the world. And so in the early 1880s, he made his way to the United States, uh, of course, first landing on the East Coast and then ultimately making his way to San Francisco, 
uh, and purchased a home in San Francisco in 1883 and founded a company called California Tartar Works. So <clears throat> what he would do there is he, you know, he actually got to know many of the local vintners through this, through this business that he had built. Um, he was traveling up primarily to Sonoma, which actually had more wine producers than the Napa Valley at that point in time, uh, but also a little bit to Napa. And he would get to know the local vintners and he would enter their fermentation tanks and scrape off the tartrate crystals from the inside of the tanks. Now, tartrate crystals, of course, are the same thing that you, you notice in an aged bottle of red, you know, the sediment that's on the side of the bottle or, you know, the crystals that are on the bottom of a cork, for example. Uh, that is actually cream of tartar. It's the same thing. It's potassium and tartaric acid fused together, uh, although it's, it's typically colored, of course, if it's in a red wine. So he saw this as an opportunity to, to build a business because vintners were just throwing this stuff away. So he, you know, of course, they would uh, allow him to enter because he's end of the day, he's cleaning their tanks for them. He's taking away this material that they were having to, you know, spend money to gather up and, and dump it. So he gathered this up and he opened up a couple of different processing facilities around the North Bay where he would purify this and bag it up into 100 pound bags and sell it uh, as cream of tartar, right, which is heavily used in baking. And the, the idea here was to ultimately save up enough money to where he could sell the business and then purchase a significant amount of land on his own and start producing his own wines. And I think it's important to say that, you know, during that period where he was traveling back and forth frequently between San Francisco, Sonoma and Napa, he gained a strong affinity towards the Napa Valley specifically. Uh, and this was quite a unique thing at the time, because you have to understand at the turn of the century, there were more plum trees planted in the Napa Valley than there were grapevines. Um, it was not anywhere close to, be, to becoming a, a, a really globally recognized wine growing region at that point. But he had this affinity because of that terroir, that unique microclimate that we were talking about before. Um, he was able to accurately predict that this, of course, would ultimately become an incredible place to grow wine grapes. Uh, but also for logistical reasons, the, the Napa Valley opens to the south towards the San Francisco Bay. Uh, and this would make it quite simple for him to be able to, you know, after his wines were produced, to get them out onto a, you know, onto rail cars and down to the bay where they could they could load them up onto ships and get them out uh, very quickly and easily. So he was always thinking ahead. 1900, he ended up selling California Tartar Works and he uh, purchased some property on the Western Rutherford bench. And his wife famously said when she, when she saw this property, what a beautiful place. And that is what they named the, uh, the vineyard and of course the winery to follow. Yeah. And he showed um, extraordinary uh, foresight and uh, business acumen. Uh, but the one thing uh, that he couldn't stop, of course, was prohibition right. in 1920, uh, 13 years uh, where alcohol was banned. Um, that took down, um, you know, uh, the wine oh. industry. Um, it, it, it decimated the wine industry, of course. So um, this is, again, him being somewhat canny, isn't it? This is sacramental wine that uh, he yes. was then producing. Absolutely. And, and actually, a, a few things happened before that, that that set him up to be very successful during Prohibition. So uh, after he purchased that first property, which, which, by the way, we still own and farm today, it's about 130 acres uh, with 80 acres planted. He went in and he planted Petite Syrah. So he ripped out the, the existing plum trees, went in with Petite Syrah, began growing the grapes, and he would sell some of his fruit, make little bits of wine, 
uh, as well. And he also started importing grapevines from France that were grafted onto phylloxera resistant rootstock. Uh, and at the turn of the century, you know, <clears throat> it had become documented that phylloxera exists in the Napa Valley. People were losing vineyards and he helped to salvage many of the vineyards around the valley through this business. So he was doing well. Um, but then in about 1904, uh, actually through a relationship that his wife had with the, with the Catholic Church in San Francisco, they started producing sacramental wine. <clears throat> so fast forward to 1920. And he was very well positioned to survive prohibition through the production of sacramental wine. So again, 1920 to 1933, completely illegal within the United States to produce alcohol and to sell it with the exception of through sacramental purposes or medicinal purposes. And he had a license to do both of these things. Um, and while everybody was, was shutting down basically during this time and also selling property for pennies on the dollar, he was purchasing more property, planting more vineyards, and he had quadrupled the size of Beaulieu during Prohibition, which was, was unheard of. So in 1933, by the time Prohibition ended, their annual production was over a million gallons. Uh, and so, you know, very significant volume for a, a relatively unknown region, even at that point in time. So quite it is amazing, amazing. what he did. Yeah, because prohibition, generally speaking, a complete disaster for Napa, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it completely destroyed the industry. There, there were very few producers that, that really survived. Uh, and even those who did, you know, were kind of limping along. De La Tour was able to, to really profit during this period and actually was able to acquire much of the land that we still farm today, which would be considered to be our top vineyards. We're actually... Uh, acquired during that era, during Prohibition. Trevor Derling at Beaulieu. Well, let's round off with another chief winemaker, Natalie Christensen at Yeelands, famous for its Sauvignon Blanc. She has recently added an Albarino to the winery's repertoire. She trained in Spain, but prior to that, her wine journey enjoyed some real serendipity. Well, I had what I what I like to coin my quarter life crisis. So, still do have a love of music, and I play very occasionally. Uh, but back in the day, I used to play a lot, and I was really interested in being a composer for New Zealand films when I first left high school. So I studied a music degree at university. But then I sort of decided I really liked the healing properties of music. So I thought maybe I would get into music therapy. Uh, I ended up doing a psychology degree as well and I did a paper in industrial organizational psychology along the way and I ended up doing my master's in that yeah and so I worked in HR for eight months and it was the pits it was miserable so yeah that's when I had my quarter life crisis I was 25 hopefully I lived to 100 left my job I had a massive student loan I thought I'd ruined my whole life and my brother was living in Marlborough at the time and he said maybe you just need to go traveling why don't you come to Marlborough and work a harvest I had no idea really what a harvest entailed, uh, but I thought that sounds great. So I arrived uh, in Marlborough in 2006 and I did my first harvest at St. Clair then and I loved it. I couldn't believe it was a job and a, a career potential. And when I was studying my master's degree, I'd been a volunteer firefighter. So I was used to steel cap gumboots and pumps and hoses. And I also had a part-time job working in a local wine bar. And so these things I'd kind of been doing along the way, I hadn't really realised, um, had sort of set me up for an exciting and awesome future. 
My God, that is... <laughs> Sorry, that was a bit of a long answer. Well, there's a lot to get in. I mean, <laughs> right, talk, yeah. talk about sort of serendipity and yeah. things happening by yeah. accident. I mean, you'd be surprised how many people I talk to for the drinking hour who sort of fell into what they're doing. But this is, you know, quite a fall, given yeah, uh, a fall. the enormity <laughs> of the, the job you're doing now. So you've always, I guess, into wine, uh, as an adult at least. Yes, I mean, like, where I grew up and... Um, I guess my main introduction into wine was sort of cask wine in the fridge that I used to sneak from my mum. But yeah, it wasn't until I really kind of got into the industry um, and obviously working in that wine bar that I started to really sort of gain knowledge and gain a full appreciation of wine. Yeah, it's um, you come so far so uh, rapidly. What attracted you then to Yeelands? Well, I actually, I had been working in Spain and I'd had some visa issues, so I was home for Christmas. And my visa was taking a while to sort out, so it coincided with the New Zealand harvest. And I was in Marlborough, and Tamara, chief winemaker at the time, contacted me asking me if I'd be interested in being the winemaker, sort of running the night shift. So I, I did that, and I loved it. After being in Spain and not really being able to speak the language, got to Yellens. I obviously could talk to people. I knew exactly how to sort things out. Um, we had an on-site engineer. It just seemed like a dream working somewhere like that. And Spain is important <laughs> here as well because you were in the Rias Baixas, weren't you? And this, mm. I think, had quite an influence on you. Yeah, so for kind of the 18... I worked in Rias Baixas on and off for about 18 months and I had a permanent job uh, up there working at a winery called Lacana, which is part of the Jorge Odoñez group. And yeah, my main project was working with Albarino and it was a variety that, well, I loved working with it and it's so expressive. It's got beautiful, vibrant acidity and it has a lot of, uh, not similarities with Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, but in the same breath it does. And what did you kind of pick up there that you would say has sort of influenced your winemaking philosophy back home in Marlborough? I'm not sure about philosophy, but um, I guess just sort of getting a feel for the the variety and how it performs, but also some techniques on how to manage the high acidity. So it's really common to like pick the fruit and then soak the skins for you know up to even up to 24 hours to sort of help drop out some of that acidity and get some of the flavour from those skins. So yeah, it was more techniques and yeah. Well, you you've picked up plenty of them. Um, <laughs> I sort of think of your winemaking signature as a, a, a kind of a relatively low intervention mm-hmm. one. And um, uh, we better explain what low intervention is, um, but you're better placed to do that uh, than me as the expert. Um, but um, w- am I right? Is that is that your kind of ethos? Yeah, most definitely. So I have worked at a few different places and I've had quite a bit of experience in different wineries and from all those experiences, you begin to know what you definitely need to do and things that you had been doing that you don't necessarily need to do or need to add. So my philosophy of winemaking is do kind of the bare minimum, not from a lazy point of view, but uh, just to sort of let the, the wine sort of express itself, not too much tinkering from the winemaker. Yeah, just keep the process as simple as possible and as clean and as sort of focused as possible. And that would be a, broadly a definition of low intervention, would it? Broadly, um, but then there's the whole kind of natural wine movement, which is pretty much no additions, maybe a tiny bit of sulphur at bottling. Um, and that's definitely not kind of the wines that we're making at Yellens. 
Mm. We have done some natural style wines, uh, but I wouldn't say that's kind of actually our main sort of body of production. You do like to experiment a bit though, don't you? I mean, a few years ago, the last time I met you face to face, I was tasting State of Flux, Mm -hmm. uh, some wines uh, that, well, again, you're better to describe those than me but these were experiments effectively weren't they? Yeah so um, we do have two wines that we ferment in concrete eggs so we've got a Sauvignon Blanc and a Chardonnay so um, the juice ferments in the the eggs and then ages on its leaves for around about 11 months. We also made a couple of uh, carbonic wines under that state of flux tier um, which were our kind of no no additions no filtering, no fining uh, wines. Uh, we did a Carbonic Sauvignon Blanc and also a car- Carbonic Pinot Noir. And just explain for those listening what Carbonic means in sort of simple terms. Uh, simple terms. Uh, so basically it's when you have the full cluster of a, a bunch. So it's not individual berries. It's the full cluster completely intact and they're placed in a fermentation vessel and then that fermentation vessel can be sort of, I guess, charged with CO2 to make it a very... Um, anaerobic environment and the fermentation actually starts within the berry so it's an intracellular fermentation and you get quite bubblegummy characters uh, and it's just a very different sort of flavour profile you get by starting the fermentation in that way. Mm, Great explanation as well thank you very much certainly better than I could have done. It might surprise some people because Yeelands is a brand that we're used to seeing in our major retailers on the shelves Um, It might surprise some people that you get to experiment whilst also overseeing a reasonably significant volume wine or or series of wines. Yeah. um, Is it important to you to experiment? Yeah, very important. Uh, I have a, well, I work with a team of, um, there's about five of us in the winemaking team. And I mean, we're all passionate about winemaking and I think it's important that we, we get freedom to play. But also the fact that we are kind of, I guess, a larger larger wine company if we do have an experiment that goes amiss it doesn't matter you know it's a drop in the ocean for us so we do have I guess more freedom than some you know with that Mm. kind of thing that's a really good point I mean does it go wrong sometimes have you have you had any I mean I don't know if you want to share them but have you had any kind of cock-ups I had one um we had some beautiful fruit from Central Otago and I wanted to do a very no no hands-on, so basically put the fruit in a plastic fermenter, sealed the lid, and just left it for about 30 days. And yeah, the pretty much the VA was through the roof, and yeah, it was not it was not pretty. And VA is volatile acidity, so that's yes, that kind of nail polish. Yeah, pretty kind much. Of. I'd made a beautiful batch of sort of balsamic vinegar. That's Natalie Christensen of Yeelands uh, rounding off our highlights from Series 9. Hope you enjoyed those. Uh, Do listen back to the interviews in full if you missed any of them. Hopefully that has whetted your appetite. My thanks to all of my guests this series and to you for listening. Do join us next time as Series 10 of The Drinking Hour begins. The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in partnership with Club Onologique. The world through the lens of wine and spirits. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.